Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord to ask his guidance in our study. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have your word. You have confirmed that this, these 66 books of the Bible are indeed direct revelation from you to us. And just as you confirmed the resurrection of our Lord through many convincing proofs, there are also many convincing proofs to the veracity of your word. One of these is the fact that there is genuine prophecy in your word, predictive prophecy, and that there are hundreds of examples of detailed prophecies within your word that give testimony to who you are. For as you declared in the Old Testament, you are the God who declares the end from the beginning, and no other God can possibly do this. And, Father, as we look down through the events of history, we see how events in the past that you have foretold were fulfilled in significant specificity. And now as we study the details related to the future, we understand that these things will be fulfilled in the same literal manner as those which have already been fulfilled. And as we study these things, we pray that what they will do for us in our spiritual life is to increase our confidence in you, our confidence in your word, and that we might gain great comfort from knowing that no matter how much chaos there may seem to be in our lives, that you are a God of order and stability, and you are working together all things together for good, and that you are in control of our lives, and that we can relax and trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study, our introductory study, to the uh, direct prophetic section here in the book of Revelation. Beginning in Revelation chapter 6, we start getting into the details of what is going to happen during human history during that period known as the Tribulation, or as we saw last time, Daniel's 70 weeks. Just by way of very quick review, as we orient to Revelation, we see that there are three sections to this book. The first chapter, which relates in, in, to, in terms of the Apostle John, the things which you have seen, that which took place immediately on the Isle of Patmos. Secondly, in chapters 2 and 3, relates to the uh, seven churches of the church age and the cycles of uh, our trends of both uh, strengths and weaknesses in the churches. And then the third section, which deals with the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. In a little more detailed way, we have this chart. And what we're focusing on now is this section from chapter 4 through chapter 19. Chapters 4 and 5 focused on what was going on in heaven Chapter 6 will focus on what happens on the earth. In chapter 7, we'll go back to get a heavenly perspective. In chapter 8, we will come back and have another earthly perspective. What happens in chapter 6 is a focus on the first cycle of judgments called seal judgments. What happens in chapter, chapter 8 is a focus on the second series of judgments that are called trumpet judgments that come out of the seventh seal judgment. And so right now we're taking a look at this section, identifying the chronology to give us somewhat of a, of a handle on all of these details. I think one of the, th 
things that in my life and in your life probably that brings a little confusion is there just seems to be so much uh, detail in the Scripture about uh, what is going on in in times. And some people want to think that, well, let's not get into prophecy. It's more important to learn about how to live now than how to and what's going to happen there. After all, you and I as believers are not going to be here. We're going to be with the Lord in heaven. So why do we spend all this time studying prophecy? Well, if we did that, we would be ignoring at least 20% of God's word because 20% of the scriptures relate to unfulfilled prophecy. And so since all scripture is given by inspiration of God, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, it means that we need to study the prophetic portions just as intensely as we do the others because they do have a very real and significant impact on how we think today. Because as believers, we are to be living today in light of eternity. And God seems to use prophecy and the teaching of prophecy in many different ways in people's lives. There have been so many, in just the last hundred years, there have been uh, tens of thousands of unbelievers who have come to an understanding of the salvation and the importance of salvation through the teaching of prophecy. I uh, often think about the impact of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you may have read that back in the uh, early 70s when it came out, or maybe uh, even later, I think I read that around 1973 or so, and I thought that that was a great summary of end-time events. There were some things in there that uh, I thought uh, Hal went a little too far in uh, almost predicting when the rapture would occur. But uh, And there were some other things that he did in there that I don't think are exegetically defensible. And so, several years ago, at a luncheon meeting with uh, some friends of mine, uh, Earl Rodmacher, Dr. Rodmacher at that time was a chancellor of, of uh, uh, Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, made the observation that he didn't particularly agree with a lot of things that Hal said, and it wasn't one of his favorite books, but apparently God liked it because so many people got saved by reading it. And I don't think I've ever been in a congregation. I've never taken a poll here, but I think there's one person here, there has been, that got saved reading Late Great Planet Earth. But I've never had a congregation where I didn't have at least two or three or four people who got saved by reading Late Great Planet Earth. And then the next big phenomena was the Left Behind books uh, written by Tim LaHaye. And those were fiction, but they wrote within the, the, a fictional account of what would transpire during the uh, period of the tribulation, beginning with the rapture in the, uh, I think, in the first book, and that's where they got the t- idea for the title being left behind. So, um, and again, hundreds of thousands of people have come to salvation by reading the Left Behind series. And the interesting thing is that in neither of those books do I think there's a really precise explanation of the gospel. It's a little fuzzy, inviting Jesus into your heart and other terms that are not uh, biblically defensible. Scriptures teach that our salvation is by believing that Jesus died for our sins, not by inviting him into our heart. But in the fuzziness, despite the fuzziness of different evangelists, God the Holy Spirit always seems to make the gospel clear, and hundreds of people still get saved. As a pastor, I have to... uh, uh, rant about the fact that people don't manage to get it right, but uh, God the Holy Spirit takes all of our failures and foibles and flaws and inarticulateness and somehow makes it makes it clear. But prophecy is used in a great way to challenge people with their need for salvation and secondly, their need to grow spiritually. And that's part of the, the reality here because the end game is that when Jesus returns at the second coming, you and I as church-age believers united with him will have been rewarded, and we will be coming back to rule and reign with him as priests and kings. And the scriptures show us that what we're doing today prepares us for that. We're building that capacity today for that future time. So uh, we understand prophecy in this way. And a third reason that prophecy is important is because in almost every era of history, we can see the kinds of 
instabilities, the kinds of social, political, and military problems, the kinds of, of geophysical disasters that are not on the same scale as the tribulation, but we see them in our own lives, and we derive comfort in the study of prophecy that despite the instability, despite the terrors, despite the chaos that we often see in our own lives, that God is in control of all of these events, and God eventually is going to work all things together for good, and he is going to make right, and he is going to uh, establish justice eventually. So these are why we study we study prophecy. Now, as we get into this, we have to understand a little bit about the structure. I, I constantly emphasize the fact in my teaching that we need to have an overview of things because uh, too often we get so wrapped up in some of the details and technicalities that we get lost in the high weeds and we forget where we are. So we have to have these overviews, and that's part of what I'm doing here, but it also is helping us uh, understand some of the chronology. And as I've said in the last two lessons, there's a lot of debate among very sound dispensational theologians who have specialized in prophecy on some of these, uh, some of these particular issues. And um, what I find uh, challenging, somewhat disturbing, is how many people I can read and they'll tell you, and I've read a lot in the last three or four weeks, trust me, they will tell you, well, this happens here and this happens here and these events happen in the second half of the tribulation, and you say, why? Why do you say that? Give me textual data. And they don't. And, and so you may think, well, he sure is getting into a lot of detail here. Well, it, the details are important. If you, get, if you miss out on the details, you miss out on some things, and I'm having to try to um, put things together that aren't, you can't find stuff. I mean, not even doctoral dissertations. I've got a couple of, there's a couple of places now, thank heavens for the Internet, you can go out and you can research all kinds of doctoral dissertations and master's theses that have been written in seminaries all over the country, and this just isn't one, a topic that you can find anything on. So it's a bit of a challenge. Well, to put it all together, the first thing we have to do is to look at Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and his, his vision of the 70 weeks decreed for Israel. We did that last time. The second thing that we have to do is to fit that framework uh, into what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. And then the third thing we're going to do is tie that together with the chronological anchor points from Daniel 9 and Matthew 24 so that we can understand the structure of the tribulation because by the time we're through with this whole thing, you will become so familiar with Matthew 24, you'll probably be sick of it and so familiar with Daniel 9 and Daniel 12 and Daniel 7 and all these other Old Testament passages as we go through the tribulation because you just can't understand what's in the tribulation without understanding the framework from the Old Testament. And yet when these things are revealed to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, uh, uh, Zechariah, Zephaniah, they are not always put in chronological order. And you, you have a lot of snapshots, like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. And what happens when you get to the book of Revelation is you finally get the key that enables you to put all these pieces together. It's like, oh, finally somebody gave me the top of the jigsaw puzzle box, and I can start putting some of these pieces together. So this is going to be a lot of fun, but it's also going to give us an opportunity to really look at different aspects of, of the Old Testament. So just for a quick reminder of the Daniel uh, 9 passage, if you weren't here last week, is that uh, Daniel had been praying to God in relation to the return of the nation, the Israelites who are in captivity in Babylon, to the land, recognizing from his study of Jeremiah that 70 years was the, the length of term for the discipline. And so after praying, for, praying about that, the Lord sent Gabriel to him to not only answer his prayer regarding when the uh, Israelites would return to the land, but to give them a framework of their future. And so 70 weeks is decreed. And we saw last time this literally means 70 periods of seven. For those of you mathematically challenged, 
Seventy periods of seven means seventy times seven, and that's 490. So a period of 490 years decreed for your people and your holy city, your people, your holy city, the Israelites, the Jews, to accomplish uh, these six things, finish the transgression, make an end of sin. This relates to Israel's sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That would be the new uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 and following millennial temple. So in Daniel 9.25, you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild. There were four decrees we looked at last time. It is the fourth one given in approximately 444 B.C. by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2, to go back to finish the rebuilding of the city, the fortress and everything, uh, to issuing a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat indicating all its defenses. Even in times of distress, there was great opposition against uh, uh, Nehemiah and what he did. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks... So there's a pause, God's stopwatch on prophecy paused at the end of the 62nd week. Remember there was um, uh, 7 and then 62, that makes a total of 69. After that pause, the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. Then a period of time would go by, at least 35 years, that the people of the prince who is to come, that was Rome under uh, Titus, uh, came in and will destroy the city. And the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And this is a reference to the Antichrist and his peace treaty with Israel. point I did not make last week is that when we think of the fact, and you've heard this before, that the first part of the tribulation is a time of peace, that is a time of peace for Israel, not for anybody else. It is a time of peace for Israel that gets shattered when in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we put these really nice uh, charts up on the screen to help you understand this, that the period from March the 5th, 444 B.C., the decree to return given to Nehemiah, until Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on uh, that triumphal entry recorded in Luke 19 on March the 30th, AD 33, were fulfilled the time period exactly. It was a period of 173,880 days. But the question that we have to address after that is this last question. I'm going too fast here. What happened to the other seven years? There's a break. There's a pause. The church age comes into that pause. Some call it an interlocution. Some call it a parenthesis. But this is the period of the church age. We don't know how long it will last. It will end when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in the event known as the rapture. And the rapture has no prophecy before it. There are no signs for the rapture. It is imminent, which means it can take place at any time. Nothing has to happen prophetically for the rapture to occur. But other things do have to happen, called signs of the times for the second coming, as we'll see in a little bit. So we, the last 70th week comes at some point in the future. It is unfulfilled, but the focus is also on Israel, just as the Old Testament uh, period was focused on Israel. It's still part of that 70th week period And so many characteristics of the church age won't be there, such as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the restrainer uh, will be removed. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit. They will not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit. They won't have the filling of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, any of those things, because that's related to church church age believers. And what we learn from Daniel 9 is that What really begins the tribulation period is not the rapture. That's what ends the church age. What begins the tribulation is this covenant, this peace treaty that the Antichrist signs with Israel. 
So, as I showed you last time in this next chart, we have the rapture that occurs, and then there's a period of time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Because of this peace treaty, Israel is protected by the Antichrist. He's the head of a Western confederacy. The uh, Israel is apostate, though. In a, they have an apostate uh, Levitical system, apostate temple, but there will be a rebuilt temple. It's hard to desecrate the temple with the abomination of desolation if there's no temple. So sometime before then, before the middle of the tribulation, they will rebuild the temple. Now, they might not start that until they're actually in the period of the 70th week, but they could start it today. And there are many movements in Israel, several groups, who have rebuilt now all the furniture. They have rebuilt everything they need. They have uh, identified priests who can serve, and they are uh, now they are uh, in the process of making all of the clothing for the priests to serve in this temple. So everything is being uh, being made ready. For this particular temple, but just because even if they started uh, building the temple tomorrow, that would not mean the rapture was imminent. It's just it, because none of these relate to the rapture. They relate to the, to the second coming. Now, nothing could happen before the rapture occurs because all that you need to really establish a worship center for the temple is what they had in the Old Testament, which is a temporary abode, a mobile home. And that's all they need to move that up, build a temporary structure on the Temple Mount and consecrate it and then continue to build it. It could Remember the temple that Jesus uh, was involved in, Herod's temple, was still under construction during Jesus' entire life. So it doesn't have to be a completed temple uh, for this to take place. But there has to be something consecrated, dedicated, where they're carrying on the daily sacrifices for the uh, Antichrist to desecrate it. After that desecration, the abomination of desolation, then everything really falls apart in the second half of the tribulation, and Israel becomes persecuted. Satan is worshipped. This is when the uh, fallen angels have been cast out of heaven about the midpoint of the tribulation, and they are visible on the earth, and everything is just uh, extremely... uh, It's just unimaginable. It's extremely horrible. So... The abomination of desolation really becomes the key to understanding all of this chronology. And we see this in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 15. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 24, and we will begin to break this down to see what, what Jesus is talking about. Now, the parallel pa- passages, which you may want to read on your own, are found in Matthew chapter 13 and Luke 21. There's some differences, though. These are not identical accounts. And what we have, if you compare them, what we must have is a divinely inspired uh, editorial, or editorialized, edited rather, edited account by the writers of Scripture. Jesus said a lot more than any one of the writers of the Gospels record. What happens is that Matthew goes into that long message and he pulls out the parts that are related to the kingdom, the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom because that's the the theme, that's the focus of Matthew's gospel. Luke's gospel is different. And in Luke 21, uh, after the abomination of desolation is mentioned, Jesus makes this statement, but before all these things happen... You will be persecuted, and before all these things happen, takes us back into the church age. You will be persecuted, talks about all these different things, and then it warns of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and uh, then the Jews being scattered to all the nations of the earth, and that, of course, is not what happens in the tribulation. That's what happened in A.D. 70. So the focus of uh, Luke's account was to take out the elements of the Olivet Discourse that related to the warning of Israel that this destruction was coming. They would, When they saw armies surround Jerusalem, that they were to flee. And this actually happened in 66 when the Jewish revolt began. 
the uh, Roman procurator uh, surrounded Jerusalem, and the Jewish believers in Jerusalem did, couldn't figure out how they were going to get out, how they were going to fulfill Jesus' warning and escape. But then uh, he, ha- he was running out of supplies. The Roman procurator was running out of supplies, and so he had to go back to Caesarea to resupply. So he, take, he broke the siege, took his troops back. On the way, he died. And so there were a couple of years before Vespasian came in with, to uh, replace him and then Titus. And during this time, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and, in fact, the Jewish believers in all of Israel uh, followed the Lord's advice and es- escaped to the Transjordan, crossed the Jordan, and there wasn't a single Jewish believer left uh, west of the Jordan. And they survived. This was one of the reasons later on that caused for such a disruption between Jews and Christians after the fall of Jerusalem, because the Jews who stayed there and the Jews who went through the revolt were uh, angry with the Jewish believers who followed Jesus' advice and uh, left Jerusalem and escaped. So Luke's focus is more on that aspect, not on the long-term, uh, long-term prophecy. But let's look here at Matthew chapter 24, and let me give you just kind of an overview before we get into some details. The situation begins when Jesus has been in the temple, and in the temple he has lamented Jerusalem and the negative volition in Jerusalem, and this is given in the last three verses of chapter 23, where Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Warning of the coming uh, destruction. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a quote from Psalm 118.26, and this it will be fulfilled at the time, at the end of the tribulation period, when the remnant of Israel that has been saved during the tribulation has followed the Lord's advice and escaped to the area around Petra, and it is there that they will call upon the Lord to deliver them, and that is when the Lord returns. Then, following his lament over Jerusalem, Jesus left the temple. He went out the eastern gate down across the what is the Valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, the Kidron Valley, and he uh, goes up the ascent on the east side, up the Mount of Olives. And as he departs the temple, his disciples uh, look back at the the beautiful temple and all of the buildings of the temple, not the compound, but the focus is on the buildings of the temple uh, themselves. That's the question. and, And they point this out. In the uh, parallel accounts, they say, isn't this beautiful? What is, what's going to happen? And Jesus answered them and said, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so our Lord there predicts the coming uh, judgment that will take place uh, when the Romans come in AD 70, and they would completely destroy the temple. And so today, uh, just to the south of the Wailing Wall, there is a pile of rubble, and these stones that you see piled up are part of the remains of the retaining wall, and the retaining wall wasn't part of the buildings. The, the, the focus here is on the buildings, not on the retaining wall. Somebody asked me years ago, well, if Jesus really said that if he was right, then the Wailing Wall wouldn't be there. Well, the Wailing Wall is just the western retaining wall on the temple mount. It wasn't part of the temple, but it's the only thing that remains from that period, so that is why uh, the Jews venerate it so much. Well, then they ask him a very important question. In verse 3, they say, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of of your coming and of the end of the age. You see, this is the kind of question people are always asking. Are we living in the end times? Uh, what are the signs of the times? And, and you, as we go through this, we'll see that people always come up and they want to know if all of these current events 
are signs of the times and if the increasing storms and and allegedly increased earthquakes and the, the scripture says wars and rumors of wars and I've heard pe- people uh, go back over the last uh, 50 years since World War II and talk about how many armed conflicts there have been per month and it's it just it'll astound you but this is not what Jesus is talking about in this particular uh, in this particular prophecy in fact what he's preparing them for is the fulfillment of the prophecy that will take place during the uh, end times so we are in the current church age the rapture is coming but he's going to talk about what will happen during the tribulation period in preparation for the coming of the coming of uh, the second coming of Christ so there is preparation for fulfillment now and then the fulfillment does not happen until the end time so uh, the prophecy here all looks forward uh, to the future now as you look at verse 3 and down to 14, this is where Jesus makes various statements about things that are coming up. And before we get into this, this is a fairly familiar passage to a lot of people. There's a focus on various things here, such as uh, there will be uh, false religions, false Christs, those who claim to be the Messiah and will deceive many. In verse 5 and verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the but the end is not here. Now, that's an important word because what did the disciples ask? What's the sign of the end of the age? And if you have your Bible, what you should do is you should circle the end in verse 3, and you should circle the end in verse 6 and connect them because this is a key word for understanding what's going on here, and then when you get down to verse 13, verse 13 says, but he who endures to the end shall be, and that's translated saved in some versions, it should be delivered. And those three ends all refer to the end time events of Daniel's 70th week. Now let me say that again in another way. This means none of this refers to anything going on in the present church age. Now, I know that you probably heard that wars and rumors of wars, well, that applies to the church age. Well, yeah, it does, but that's not the question, and that's not what he's saying. We have to make sure that we take things in context. There's a number of people who say, well, Jesus was asked, what are the signs of the end of the age? Well, the first thing he says in verse 5 and 6 is to talk about what's going on in the church age. Well, that really doesn't make sense. You have to focus on these key words. Now, while you're, while you're there, and just, just so you uh, don't think I've somehow lost my mind, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Where's Jack? Hey, Jack. If my fingers are cold... I know there's a couple of ladies in this congregation who probably have their toes turning blue. Revelation 10, verse 7. This is after the seal judgments. This is after the trumpet judgments. This is at a pause and when the mighty angel, the strong angel, uh, opens this little book related to judgment that's got, when he opens it, seven, thutter, seven thunders are uttered. And um, John is told to seal those up and not to reveal what they say. And in verse 7, the angel says, But in these days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. Same Greek word. It will be the end. The end is defined, the same word that is used for the end in Matthew 24, uh, 3 and Matthew 24, uh, 7 or, or 6 and Matthew 24, 13 is stated in Re- Revelation 10, 7 that 
even at that point, the end hasn't come yet. Now, if you look down here back in Matthew 24, down to verse 14, Jesus says in this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the very next verse is verse 15, which takes us to the abomination of desolation. And in the abomination of desolation we read, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This takes place uh, in the flow of the description right after verse 14. So the indication is the end period comes after this abomination of desolation takes place. Well, what does that mean? That means that the end, this term the end, refers to actually the end of the tribulation period, not the end times, not the seven-year tribulation period itself, but the end of the tribulation period. Because Jesus keeps talking about this, and we'll see this in other other passages, that, that there's this distinction made, and in fact these first series of judgments that are mentioned are the summary of these judgments, the trends that are mentioned in verses 4 through 14, are said to be the beginning of sorrows in verse 8, and the term there is the beginning of birth pangs. And this imagery of labor, a woman going into labor before she gives birth to a child, is imagery that is used in various places in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 13.8, and Isaiah 26:17, Jeremiah 4:31. These are all places where uh, this concept of birth pangs or labor was seen as a as a, an indication that the Messiah was about to come. In fact, uh, various Jewish sources uh, indicate this. There was one source, the Zohar Chadesh says that at that time, when the Messiah returns, shall, war shall be stirred up in the world, nation shall be against nation, and city against city. Much distress shall be renewed against the enemies of the Israelites. And in the Bereshit Rabbah, which is part of the Talmud, we read, if you shall see the kingdoms rising against each other in turn, then give heed and note the footsteps of the Messiah. And that is the verse where, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum got the title for his book, The Footsteps of the Messiah. In other words, what are the events that lead up to the, the coming of the Messiah? So what we have here is an indication that Jesus is talking about what will happen within the period of the tribulation itself. Starting with his answer in verse 4, he is not, even though there are things that will happen in the tribulation period and leading up to it, that are also trends in the church age, just because there's similarities doesn't mean that they're the same thing. And what happens in uh, verses 4 through 14 are the signs of his coming, not trends of the ages. All right? They are what hap- they are, and, and that's why he constantly makes these references in there to, well, the end hasn't come yet. These are just the beginnings of the birth pangs, and the birth pangs are that which come during the last half of the tribulation period, the, the, when the intensity of the judgments is at its highest. That is the period immediately preceding the day of the Lord, which refers to the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his particular of his kingdom at that time. So we put all of these t- things together and we began to get an idea of what is going on in wait, lost my slide. There we go. What is going on in the end time? So we see a certain parallelism between the Olivet discourse and the sealed judgments of Revelation. So if we just look at Revelation 6, you don't have time to turn there this morning. In those six seal judgments that are described there, we have various things indicated. For example, the first is that there will be, the first rider is the one who's riding the white horse, and he is going forth uh, conquering and to conquer. And many people say, well, that's the Antichrist. Well, in a way it is. 
represents him. It's not him because if the rider of the white horse represents a person, then the rider of the other three horses have to re- represent people, and they don't. So it's, it doesn't say it. My, my belief is that the riders are angels executing these judgments or allowing these things to take place. And what is allowed with the first horse is the rise of the Antichrist. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. That's described in Revelation 6.2. That's the first uh, seal judgment. The second seal judgment is that, that peace is taken from the earth, not the land of Israel, but the earth. And there's an important distinction about some of these things in the book of Revelation. Uh, there is international instability as part of the uh, third, uh, second seal also, rather, verses 3 and 4. There are famines mentioned in uh, Revelation uh, 6, 5 through 8, an increase of famines. Now, we have famines all through the ages, but these famines are not like any that have ever been before. Uh, there will be pestilences unlike anything that's ever been before. We're gonna, in, in the book of Revelation, tribulation, you have pestilences that within a period of three or four months wipe out a quarter of the earth's population, and then in the trumpet judgments, they'll wipe out a third of the earth's population. So these are unlike any that have ever, ever been seen in history. Uh, there will be persecutions and martyrdoms that take place as part of the uh, fourth seal, or uh, fifth seal, excuse me, persecutions and martyrdom. And then we have earthquakes mentioned uh, and, and cosmic phenomena mentioned, all of which are laid out in those first six seal judgments. Well, we find parallels to this in Matthew 24, where all of these things, or almost all of them, are mentioned by the Lord as that which comes just before the end as part of the uh, beginning of sorrows, part of the uh, lead-up to, that immediately precedes the abomination of desolation. And Mark 13, we have the same thing. Luke 21, we have the same thing. And you'll see this chart again, trust me. Because what this shows is that, that Matthew 24 is going to give us a framework for understanding uh, the chronology of Revelation. Here we have a chart with the, uh, of Daniel's 70th week. It's divided into three and a half years on each side. These three and a half year periods are indicated in various ways in Scripture. Sometimes they're listed as months, 42 months. Sometimes they're listed as days and uh, sometimes as years. But what separates them is the event of the abomination of desolation, which occurs halfway through the tribulation. So part of what we need to do is find out where that happens within the book of Revelation, and then we can identify these other things. Well, what we see from Matthew 24 is that all of the things that happen, at least in the seal judgments, if not the trumpet judgments, uh, clearly occur in the first half of the tribulation period and precede the uh, abomination of desolation, which is mentioned in uh, Matthew 24:15. Following that, in Matthew 24:16, we read Jesus' warning: "Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains." Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then, immediately following this, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world. So the intensified, intensified period of the tribulation occurs following the abomination of desolation, and the first half is the beginning of sorrows. Now, leaving Matthew 24, because that just gives us a nice, a nice framework, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. We'll just kind of connect these things to give you that framework, and then next time we'll come back and start getting into the seal judgments. Revelation chapter 11. Now, just to remind you of what happens, thinking things through, Revelation 6 is the seal judgments. Revelation 7 shifts to heaven. 
Four and five was in heaven, six is on the earth. Chapter seven goes back up to a heavenly perspective. This is when the 144,000 are sealed, and it's a picture of how God is protecting uh, these 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. This occurs at approximately the same time of the six seal judgments. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we come back to focus on the earth, and the trumpet judgments are described in 8 and 9. And then there's a shift from the chronological order to another perspective to help us understand what's going on. Chapter 10 focuses on the mighty angel and his book of judgment. And then there's a shift to the two witnesses in 11, 1 through 14. And these two witnesses, some think they're Elijah and Moses, some think they're Elijah and Enoch, uh, probably Elijah and Moses, I think, but because they have a ministry related to Israel. But they will, um, they will be killed after uh, 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. So after the first half of the tribulation, they will be killed and they will, their bodies will be laid out for observation for three and a half days. And we're told in Revelation 11.10 that those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because of these two, these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And what we see here is this picture of the hatred, the antagonism of the earth dwellers towards God. And this is pictured in other places near the end of the of the uh, sixth, the end of the sixth judgment, that as intense as those trumpet judgments were, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues were told in seven or nine twenty, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. And they did not, verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. It's they're so hardened in their rebellion that they, uh, that's the same picture we have in Revelation uh, 11, verse 10, that they just have a, a three-day celebration on the death of these two witnesses. And then in verse 11, we're told that these, these two witnesses are going to be resurrected and then they will be taken to heaven in verse 12 and in verse 13, key verse, in that same hour there was a great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell, in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and look at that last sentence, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is when the majority of Jews living in Jerusalem respond to the message of these of these two witnesses. This is when they accept Jesus as their Messiah. This is when they recognize that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and they give glory to the God of heaven, and then there, there's this massive turn among the Jews. But where are they living? They're living in Jerusalem. They haven't fled yet, according to Matthew 24, 15. They are in Jerusalem. Now, they give glory to the God of heaven. The rest are afraid. Then the, that section ends. The second war was passed. And then there are, uh, <clears throat> there's the seventh angel is about to sound. We get a parenthesis at the rest of the chapter. And then in verse 12, there's another vignette given related to the woman and the child that she gives birth to and the dragon. And the woman that uh, is in this passage is Israel. And the child that is born is the is Jesus. So part of it is reflecting back on what is reflecting back on what has already happened. She bears a male child, verse five, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's Jesus. And then there's a time shift. None of this is spoken in a direct chronology. And then verse seven talks about a war in heaven that breaks out. This is when Lucifer, the dragon. The devil from old is cast out, the serpent from old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he's cast to the earth, and his angels are cast out with him. This happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, there, there's this rough chronology in Revelation. We've already covered the seal judgments, and we've already covered the trumpet judgments. So why would this casting out of heaven go way back before all of that? It doesn't. And when he's cast out of heaven, we're told that he starts pursuing the woman and persecuting the woman, verse 13. And this is where we get brought up to where we are chronologically in relation to chapter 11. 
Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted, that's the three-and-a-half-year point, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. This is Matthew twenty four fifteen. This is the those believing Jews who saw the abomination of desolation respond to what Jesus taught and flee into the into the wilderness for protection uh, for a time, times and a half a time for three and a half years. That time, time and a half a times refers to the last half of the tribulation period. So they're out in the wilderness during the last half of the tribulation. So the events of of, of the, that, that earthquake in Jerusalem and the rest who give glory to the God of heaven must take place before the uh, midpoint of the tribulation. And then we're told in verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So it's talking about regenerate Israelites in this chapter who have fled into the, the wilderness. So when we put all of this together, what we discover is that the seal judgments and trumpet judgments must precede the midpoint of the tribulation. That's the chronological flow of Revelation. That when we hear about peace in Jerusalem during the first half, that is related to Israel. It's not peace in the world. This is when all of these other things are taking place. And it's the last three and a half years where you see the intensity pour out. This is when you uh, see the Antichrist. He's, he's created the abomination of desolation. He's erected an idol in the temple to worship him. And it is there that, um, that just literally all hell breaks loose on earth. But at the end, Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. And so it's not just a story of devastation, but a story of real hope. And that is, in this age, the focus that if someone has not trusted Christ, as long as we're here, as long as the rapture hasn't occurred, there is still the opportunity to trust in Christ, and then you won't be here during the great tribulation. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you are in control of history and you will bring all things to a conclusion, and that as we see these events unfold in the future, we are reminded that sin is uh, incredibly destructive and that man will come to the verge of destroying himself in his pride and his arrogance, thinking he can make life work apart from you. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they will take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that all you need to do is trust in him, to believe in him, and you will have eternal life. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.